speaking with my wife, and, you know, I, what am I going to do in this lineup of dynamic speakers, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to hold my own in this, uh, in this environment, what am I, you know, what, what kind of strategy, so I decided to stay up all night last night screaming at the top of my lungs with the, with the thought that if this could be distracting enough that you wouldn't notice the mediocrity of the presentation, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll go on that theory and, and see if that, see if that works, but I, I I hope everybody can hear, and we'll, we'll do the best we can. And they'll certainly require your interaction this morning. And uh, I tried to think about what would be a topic that would be worthwhile for this group. Um, you know, we have solid people in the room. That's why you're here. And so, you know, for me to try to to to, to tell you something doctrinally that you don't already know, I don't think that's I don't think that's something I'm going to be very good at. And so. My goal uh, for myself this morning, and hopefully my goal for all of us is, can we, can we take a, a different view? Can we uh, more honestly evaluate how we treat the world around us? I mean, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And if we're not making an impact on the world around us, we're probably not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And so if that doesn't work, it's also going to be a problem. Speak to me. Okay. So the question is, talk about first impressions. And I want to start with a little social experiment. So please, please bear with me. I'm going to show, I'm going to splash to a picture on the screen, a picture of a person. And I want you to say out loud, loudly, all at the same time, the first thing that pops into your mind. Don't, don't political correct me. Don't try to impress your friends by saying something, you know, hyper intelligent. Honestly say the first thing that pops into your mind. My scribe this morning is going to type some of those down. We're going to talk about them in a little bit. But play along. This will be much more fun if you play along. The first thing, it is a description of the person, a, just from a gut reaction, what you think their personality might be, their character, their lifestyle, whatever the first, first thing that pops into your mind, please say it out loud, okay? It'll be more fun if we play along. Okay, here we go. Go. Good. We good? Got a few? Okay. I got three of these. Okay. Next one. First thing in your mind, please, out loud. Ready? Very good. One more. Okay, so that's all very interesting. What you, what you find out is we feel like, and very often we can, learn a lot in a very short amount of time. That this, this powerful computer that God has given us is phenomenal at making these quick determinations. At making it, we, we might call it a first impression. We might call it a gut reaction, a, a, a split-second decision. Um, psychologists and, and, and people that study this thing call it rapid cognition, is that we just have a sense, we have a feel, we, we make a split-second decision without a conscious uh, thought. Well, why do we have to do this? Well, the reality is if we had to make a ledger of the pluses and minuses of every decision that we had to make in life, we'd never get out of bed. So we we got we to gotta make quick decisions about, you know, what socks do I pick, and which which door do I go in, and, and where do I, what seat do I pick, 
Did anybody, did anybody have a, a lengthy internal dialogue about what seat they picked this morning? No, you just kind of saw the seat that made sense. Something in the back of your mind told you that that seat made sense, but it wasn't as if you, you, you put the pluses and minuses in some kind of chart. Why do we have to do this? Well, uh, the phrase that was, and, and this, all these ideas come from this book called Blink, which is really, really fun, very secular, but, but a really interesting book about uh, Malcolm Gladwell's the author, how we make these split-second decisions. And he says it's intellectual triage. You triage, right? You go into the emergency room, you've got to take the worst cases first. Our brains consciously can only handle so many decisions. And so the simple stuff like where am I standing right now, or should I walk backwards or should I walk forwards, I don't, I don't have the intellectual capacity to make all those decisions. They just kind of happen in the background. And these, the second we see somebody, these things happen in the background. And we, we, we make instantaneous, split-second kind of decisions. And we are remarkably good at this, that, that this machine that we have is really, really good at it. And so instantly we, we kind of get a sense of whether that person's going to be friendly and whether they're trustworthy and whether they're competent. It's, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating if you look at the research. A group of college students before they began a semester with a new professor, was shown a 10-second video clip of that professor in action with no audio. So, hey, good morning. Video only, 10-second silent clip. Person they'd never met, class they'd never took, never seen a syllabus, never opened the book. They, they judged that professor based on that 10-second silent clip on competence, likability, and how they were going to do in the class. At the end of the semester, they took the same evaluation. They were 90, over 90% identical. Within 10 seconds, they knew whether they were going to enjoy the class, whether the guy was competent, and how they were going to do. It's fascinating. Consciously, they probably couldn't have told you why. They just knew. They just sensed. They just kind of understood. Have you ever walked into a room and just sensed that there was an argument going on that you walked into? We've all had that sense, Right? And, and consciously, we probably couldn't, was she sitting a little too far away? Was her body language a little too defensive? Was there, was there less talking than usual? Consciously, we probably couldn't even put the pieces together. But something, in, again, in that, in that machine in our brain says, I just walked into something. There's something uneasy about the situation. We're, we're, we're remarkably good at making these quick decisions. That's the reason we, the, 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 the phrase, the common phrase, you go with your gut, use your gut instinct. A lot of times it's right. Because we're really, really good at this. And, and obviously, the more experience, the more expertise we have, the better off we are. Um, there, there's a story about a tennis professional, a guy that taught tennis lessons for years and years. He could, as the, the if you watch tennis, as, as the tennis player was serving, he could call whether or not it was going to be a fault. He couldn't consciously tell you why, but something about the body language, about the mannerisms, about the, about the way the bat, just whatever it was, he just saw it. He saw it before it happened. I would be terrible at that. I don't have that experience and expertise. But somebody that does can make those split-second decisions. So obviously the more experience we have with something, the more reliable those judgments are. And these first impressions happen. When we see somebody, we have a first impression. There's not really any way to avoid that or to remove that. I'm going to ask you this morning to try to control it. Can we consciously override what we immediately think when we see someone new? So... Question is, what is our first impression when we see someone? All right, now I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to these to these pictures. What was our first impression? Tara, help me out. What were some of the words? For the first picture, yelling, Muslim, and radical. It's, you may have heard a few others. Would your 
So I'm, I'm, I'm playing games here, right? And I'm, I'm purposely rigged to the game. Would your answers have been different if you'd have seen the uncropped picture? Probably would have been a little different, right? It's a Christian in Egypt. Uh, so this picture? Poor, poverty, hungry, and war. Would your answers have been different if you'd seen the uncropped picture? It's a church in Sudan. Some of you pegged this one. This was pretty good. Go ahead. Preacher, teacher, leader, doctor, and caring. Yeah, uh, that was pretty good. That, that was, uh, again, what our answers have been different when we've seen the uncropped picture. So as good as we are at first impressions, and I think some of those answers were 100% accurate. There was poverty. There was poor. There was, there was probably some anger in that first picture. We, we identified some of those things on a split second, and yet did we miss the most important aspect of the picture if we'd have, if we'd have seen the whole picture. So... What's our first impression when we see someone? I had a, a really good friend of mine, and when we have a conversation and someone new would come up or we'd, we would talk about a new person or a new person would enter in, he get a great phrase and stuck with me. He said, first of all, there's a soul involved here. Man, it is such a phenomenal uh, phrase, and I say it to myself um, time and time again. First of all, there's a soul involved here. If that was our gut-level instinctive reaction when we saw someone, man, that is a... That is a mood-altering, if you'll help me with the phrase, that changes the temperature of the room. If, if, if that is, when someone new walks into your life and your first instinct is, first of all, there's a soul involved here, that completely changes our interactions that we have with people on a day-to-day basis. And to do that, we have to override some of these, these impulses, some of these first impressions that we're really, really good at. Because our instinct is to evaluate someone on other criteria. We notice immediately if they're friendly or if they're financially successful. I think we said angry and poor in a couple of those pictures, right? We're good at evaluating those kind of things. Or, you know, do they, do they look like politically they would be in the same spectrum as I am? Or does it look like someone that I, I'm going to be friends with? If, if that's the way that we are evaluating people... I think that we're missing opportunities in the world around us. And this was the, pro- this was the era of Jonah. And I'm going to look very quickly. We all know the story of Jonah. And, and the, the what happened to Jonah is a great kid story. The why of Jonah, I think, is a great adult story. Uh, and, and to spare myself some syllables, I'm going to have somebody read for me. If somebody doesn't care to turn to 2 Kings, the uh, 14th chapter, and read verses 23 through 26, please. So this is in the reign of Jeroboam II. This is in the northern kingdom of Israel. And this period of time, you know, Israel's still a mess spiritually. But in this period of time, they experienced a good deal of success militarily, politically. The borders of the kingdom, uh, Jim just read for us, the borders of the kingdom, verse 25, were extended and restored. 
You know, this kingdom had been chipped away at over the years as, as the sin had increased and Syria had chipped away and Edom had chipped away and the borders had, had tightened up. But Jeroboam II militarily was very successful, expanded the, the borders of the kingdom were as big as they'd been in the, in the days, the heyday, the salad days of David and Solomon. Who was the prophet that prophesied all that was going to happen? It was Jonah. Now think about, the, the, when we typically think about prophets bringing messages to kings, we think about Isaiah, or we think about uh, Jeremiah. We think about somebody who's bringing a message of, guys, this ain't going to go well. If you keep down this path, you're going to be destroyed. Jonah brought a positive message. Jonah said, this is all going to work out. We're going to grow. We're going to expand. We don't know the full measure of his message. But it's probably not a stretch to say that Jonah was revered, right? I mean, you think about, think about the example of, of Balaam Balak. As long as he said good things, all was well. Jonah was, you know, probably not a stretch to say Jonah was a popular guy in that northern part of Israel. A patriot. He was for his country. He, he was the one that talked about the borders expanding. And I think that that mindset, if you, if you, if you consider that, that he was perhaps a popular, well-revered person in that northern kingdom, I think that helps explain his mindset of why in Jonah, the first chapter, he's asked to go to Nineveh, and he gets on that boat and goes to Tarshish. By the way, it says specifically that he paid his fare, which makes me think he was also probably pretty well compensated for being a prophet. So everything that Jonah knew when he was asked to go to Nineveh, he was asked to turn on its head. Because Jonah knew about Assyria. Jonah knew about politically, militarily where he was going. And we don't have to assume his... uh, rationale for why he made this decision to get on the boat because if you turn to the book of Jonah he's pretty upfront about it in Jonah the fourth chapter verses one through three Jonah instead of listening to the word of God why did you get on the first boat out of town and he tells us pretty clearly somebody care to help me with that one So we know the story that Jonah went, and it wasn't like he took some, some great eloquent message. If you read the passage, he said 40 days and then it was going to be overthrown. And, and I got a feeling he might have been whispering it when he said it. He, didn't, he was not, uh, maybe worse than me, he was not excited about this message. I heard somebody say one time, hey, preachers and, and gospel, people that are teaching the gospel out there, you're never promised revival in the people that you, that you speak to. The only, the only real example of revival we got was in Nineveh, and Jonah didn't want it. <laughs> so, so be careful with, 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 with thinking that you're going to change the world. And yet, when Nineveh did repent, and the Lord did relent, Jonah essentially says in the first three verses of chapter 4, I was afraid this was going to happen. This is why I went to Tarshish. Because these people might repent and then look at the mess that I have made for my country. And you know what? Politically, militarily, Jonah was right. It was 30 years later that the king of Assyria was getting tribute from the king of Israel. And it wasn't too many decades later that the then king of Assyria was leading the people of Israel into captivity with hooks through their noses. Jonah was right. Politically, militarily, he had it pegged. These people were a problem. And Jonah's life, I don't know if Jonah could ever go home again. Hey, can you imagine? Where you been, Jonah? Well, Assyria was going to be destroyed, but I went and saved him. 
So Jonah's livelihood, his country, his, I don't know if he could ever go home. I'm not saying that excuses Jonah, but I do think, I do think it helps understand where his mindset was. So what did Jonah miss? In the last two verses of the book, in, in Jonah, the fourth chapter, verses 10 and 11, and I'm sure we all know these verses, but I think it's interesting to think about them in this context, that God tells Jonah what he missed. Somebody care to read those two for me? Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should not I have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hands, as well as many animals? Jonah, even as he was preaching, to, even as he was giving his little, his, his, his little message, it seemed that Jonah never considered the actual plight of the souls of Nineveh. I wonder if sometimes we're not that way, that, that we go through life and we interact with people and we consider them from a what our business relationship is or what our family relationship is, and the plight of their soul never, never enters our mind. There's even a more stark contrast in Jesus' day in John the 11th chapter is that the chief priest, practically, not practically, they admitted the spiritual implications of who Jesus was, and yet the political and social impact of who he was clouded their judgment. John 11, 45 through 48. If we let him go on like this, if we let him go on proving that he's the son of God like he's doing, not that people will be in a better spiritual place or, or, or not that uh, the lost can be found or, or not that people can be healed. If we let him go on like this, the Romans will come take away our place in our nation. We're guilty sometimes of viewing people, uh, you know, from a context other than the spiritual context, which we should. What's the first thing we notice when we meet about somebody? They look friendly. They look attractive. They look competent. They look trustworthy. They look like they're well-to-do. Whereas the first thing we notice, that there is a presence of a soul in this relationship. It's a pretty uh, attitude-changing statement. If we can get ourselves, if we can override our initial gut reaction impulse and make that statement. Because when we, when we uh, come to this point that we recognize that in every interaction there's a soul involved, it brings about compassion. Um, and compassion is a really interesting word. And perhaps you've all done word studies on this. I think it's, a, it's, it's an excellent study in itself, this word compassion. A word not commonly found, in my understanding, in a lot of Greek writings. That, that, that in the gospel, this word was, if not coined, then it was certainly popularized to, def- to d- define this specific feeling uh, that, that was brought about. Matthew, the ninth chapter, being one of the examples. And, man, this is a great passage. You know, we'll talk about synthesizing into a few words who Jesus was. Uh, I think this is as good a place as any to do it. Uh, Matthew 9, 35 and 36. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their 
synagogues and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion, you break it down into its component parts, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll butcher the pronunciation here, but you'll get the, you'll get the impact. Splanchnizomai, or that word splanchna, that innards, guts, that, and, and being moved to your guts, that it's a kick to the stomach. That when Jesus saw these people harassed and helpless and spiritually wandering, it wasn't a dismissal or it wasn't a, man, they should make better decisions. But it was, I mean, it physically hurt him in his guts. You know, in our, in our, in, in the Greeks kind of held, that's where the seat of emotion was. We would say it's in the heart. And so our word would be, he was literally heartbroken. If you've ever seen your child hurting and there was nothing you could do about it, or, or you see something like that and you feel that pit of your stomach, this, that, just that hurt, I think that's the word. That's the word that the gospel writers are describing here, that, that, that feeling, that, that emotion, that, that deep concern and, and emotion uh, coming in. We see the word in Luke, the 10th chapter, used to describe the Samaritan in the parable of the Good, in the parable of the good Samaritan. And I'm not going to take time to lay out the parable. I'm going to assume everybody knows it. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, in the 33rd verse, notice what it says about, remember, the priest and the Levite, left this guy beaten, wounded, half dead. But the Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This is a guy who was unlike him, who probably in a different setting would not have acknowledged the Samaritan, probably would have disliked him. And yet the Samaritan, seeing the human condition, was just, his heart hurt, his guts hurt. And he went forward and and helped the person. I'm reminded in John the 10th chapter in verse 10 that Jesus says, he's talking about the, a lot of comparisons with the sheep and the sheepfold there. And he says in verse 10, the thief, Satan, comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I'm persuaded that as we walk through the streets of our life in a spiritual way, that we're running into a lot of souls that have been attacked and beaten and robbed. That we see it. And if you care, you feel it. That souls have been attacked by Satan. They've been beaten down by the consequences of their sin. And they've been robbed of their self-worth and of, of, their, uh, of their hope. If we only look at the parable of the Good Samaritan as helping somebody physically, I think we've missed the point. Is that there are souls out there that have been attacked and beaten and robbed. And how often do I say... Uh, I'm not sure that I'm not sure it's my place to be involved. I think if they need help, they'll come, that, that, that they'll come ask. I'm not sure it's my place to insert myself into that. I'm not sure that is wholly different than what the priest and the Levite did. They didn't know if it was their place to get involved in that. It, it looks like that he's made some bad decisions, and man, when he start making some better decisions, maybe he'll come visit us at Southside, and man, we, then we can really help him. I'm afraid I'm walking to the other side of the street way too often. We are shown in Scripture what faith without compassion looks like. We're given a great model. It should concern us that it's possible to have faith without compassion. Because I can be an intellectual believer in Jesus, but if I don't have compassion, I turn into a Pharisee. And we're given a great role model for what this is like. Three examples of how they did this. 
And by the way, I don't, I don't think that this is breaking news. I think it's broken news that there may be a tendency for us in the Lord's church to take on some of these attributes. Remember, the Pharisees had a history of doctrinal purity and turned it into a reality of doctrinal arrogance. So if we have a history of doctrinal purity, we better be careful that it doesn't turn into a present of doctrinal arrogance. Because that, that can happen, and it certainly happened to the Pharisees. In Matthew, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2, one way that we can have faith and no compassion is to hold people to an unreasonable standard. Hold them to a standard that doesn't have anything to do with what you can find in God's written word. Matthew 12, 1 and 2, somebody care to read those for me? What was not lawful to do on the Sabbath they were accusing the uh, disciples of doing? Anybody remember? Working. Working. Specifically, what kind of work? Yeah, well, you're, you're threshing. You're, you're uh, harvesting. It, that was their definition of harvesting, as was codified into the uh, uh, traditions of the Pharisees, which they had laid on top of the Old Testament scriptures to create this unbearable burden of Jesus called it of requirements of the law. Jesus called the disciples guiltless a few verses later. This had nothing to do with their breaking of the law. This had to do with an unreasonable standard that the Pharisees had for those that they that you know that their doctrinal purity had had, had turned into these unreasonable standards that they held for other people. I get myself in trouble with things like this. Do we have unreasonable standards for people that walk into our lives? You know, if he really cared, he would wear a tie to church, right? I get it. I get it. I get it if it's a doctor. I get it if it's a lawyer. I get it if, if it's a banker or a con man. That, I'm sorry. I mean, a banker that, that, that goes to work every day in a, in a shirt and tie. I get it. But, man, that, that, guy, that guy out, that, that coal miner... Are we, are we holding others to an unreasonable standard that you can't find in Scripture? What about, second, if we define people by their sin? If, if what the first thing that we think about when we see someone is we know the sin they're in, and that defines them to us. Luke, the seventh chapter. This is one of the, it, uh, I think if this is studied in depth, this is one of the most emotional passages in Scripture where this prostitute comes and, and anoints the feet of Jesus and begins to cry. And... If, if you read this passage, in my understanding of it, Jesus is invited to the home of this Pharisee for dinner. There's, there, there's in a courtyard, probably a, a somewhat public area, uh, in, in the courtyard of this Pharisee's home. Because, you know, you wanted to show off if you had the rabbi over for dinner. They're reclining as they would, laying on their side around this table. And there's probably a crowd watching. And so imagine the, the courage required of this woman to... This woman who was not invited, who was certainly not welcome, whose reputation was known, who was no doubt looked down upon by the Pharisees who lived in that house. Think about the courage of that woman to walk up to Jesus' feet and to begin to anoint his feet. And, and whatever happened in that interaction, did Jesus turn around and looked at her? What, and and, and is she, the gravity of her life weighed on her shoulders, and, and she just began to cry? And, 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 and her soul just poured out all over Jesus' feet? And, and you, that, that picture of that woman just unleashing her soul on, on Jesus there, if you'll allow me to use that expression. And what is the Pharisees' reaction? John chapter 7, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 7, in verse 39. 
when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. How cold-hearted do you have to be to watch that woman in that moment doing that thing and say, man, if he knew, she's a sinner. She was defined by the Pharisee by her sin. Perhaps we have a tendency to define people by their sin, not to define them by their soul. He's an alcoholic. She's homosexual. We define them by their sin instead of trying to define them by their soul. There's an opportunity in all of those souls, but if we define them by their sin, it creates a barrier that makes it very difficult for for us to, to take Jesus to them. And then just the tour de force of pharisaical condescension. I mean, it's fantastic if it wasn't uh, terrible. John, the seventh chapter. I mean, if you just want the trifecta of bigotry, arrogance, and condescension, this is it. This, this, is, this is the Pharisees at their most pharisaical. John, the seventh chapter, verses 45 through 49, please. Wait, 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 wait. Have any of the Pharisees believed in him? This, obviously, none of the Pharisees have believed in him. He's a heretic. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. It wasn't too many years later that as he was being murdered, Jesus uttered the phrase, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And here, the Pharisees say loudly and clearly, Father, condemn them because they don't know what they do. The gap between those two statements is enormous. The mindset between how we view souls in those two ways is phenomenally important. If it's Father, forgive them because, because that soul is hurting and we can, take, we, can, we can bring them to Jesus versus this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Man, that's a phenomenal difference. Souls that are hurting react in um, strange ways, unpredictable ways. We, we, we often have to consider that that reaction is because that soul's hurting. And compassion, seeing that person as a soul, helps us to identify with that. One, one side point, very, very quickly, and, and, and there's been 100 sermons on this, and I know everybody understands it, but it probably fits into this, into this discussion, is not only that, that that soul is hurting, but that that soul can be saved, that we are not qualified to make the determination, right? Because we've already studied, we get a gut reaction, and if we've studied with a lot of people over many years, I'm here to tell you we're probably pretty good at it. <laughs> we've probably got a really good sense of who is a, is a good candidate, if you'll allow me to use that term, of who might be receptive to the gospel. And yet, the stakes are too high. The stakes are too high for us to make that determination because there are still errors. The Warring Harding error is what's used in the book. That's a picture of Warren Harding. I don't know if you can see it, but man, he, he just looks like a president. He's silver hair. He's tall, had a deep voice. He spoke eloquently. And when he would meet with people, just the immediate reaction, it seems, is that he looked like a president. And he was voted president, and he's widely regarded as one of the worst. 
cheated on his wife, started a bunch of scandals, took money from anybody that would come to Washington. The stakes are too high to vote for somebody just because they look like a president. The stakes are too high to dismiss someone because it doesn't look like that they would be receptive to the gospel. Last. First, there's a soul involved here. Secondly, that soul may be hurting. Thirdly, this is a soul I can lead to Jesus. When we use this term lead to Jesus, I think the perception that we get, the image that's in our mind, is somebody in a safari hat with a, with a sword, this way to Jesus, here we go. We're going to lead somebody through the jungle. And that, and specifically if you've got Jim Hardy in mind in that picture, it's a fantastic image. But <laughs> I don't, I'm not persuaded that's precisely what we're talking about here. That, that leadership, as we need to understand it as Christians, is way different than the way we understand it in our world around us. Because leadership as Christians is not about hierarchy. It's not about authority. And it's not about position. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. If you define leadership, you just look it up, uh, Merriam-Webster or whatever, social influence in the pursuit of a goal. That, that you are influencing someone in a direction that you want to influence them. The world would do that through coercion, through a carrot or a stick, that I'm going to entice you to do this or I'm going to punish you if you don't. That's the world's view of leadership. If i got a big enough stick and can make you do something, I'm a leader. Matthew, the 20th chapter, I'll read these verses quickly, that Jesus' perception of leadership was very different. Matthew 20 and verse 25. The whole context of this passage is fantastic. I I encourage anybody to follow it. Uh, The the mother of the sons of Zebedee come, and and then the reaction of the apostles is off the charts. But verse 25, somebody care to read that for me? Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. So that, that... that language may be a little confusing, but as I understand it, Jesus is setting up for us here that uh, in verse 25, there's a, there's a hierarchy among the Gentiles. Verse 25, the rulers of the Gentiles lord over the Gentiles. So Gentiles lord the Gentiles. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So the great ones are even on top of them. Well, that's every organizational chart you've ever seen. That power, authority, leadership, from the top down, and, and you, you force that on those below you. So somebody read for me uh, 26 through 28. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As Christians, our leadership is not coercive. It has nothing to do with the fact that we have authority over someone. That, that Jesus says that leadership is about service. And he says, whoever would be great, if you want to be a leader, you've got to be a servant. Are there case studies of this in Scripture? I believe that there are. I, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever seen this, taught, uh, this passage uh, in, in 1 Peter 3 talked about as a leadership passage. I wholeheartedly believe that it is. In 1 Peter, the third chapter, talking about a wife and the influence that she can have over her husband. Hold on a minute. Wife leading a husband? We got all kinds of authority, headship, 
uh, usurping issues here we got to talk about. Now remember, Christian leadership doesn't have anything to do with authority. It doesn't have anything to do with hierarchy. It doesn't have anything to do with um, um, th- those positions. It's just about serving someone else. That's how we lead. First Peter 3, first four verses, if somebody would please. Likewise, wives. How did this, how does this wife win her unbelieving husband? Not from words in this passage, in your own words. How does she win her husband? Example. Service. That this, that this believing wife is the wife that God through scripture tells her to be and that she relentlessly serves and honors and respects and leads that soul to Christ. That's leadership. That is phenomenal. And if we could take, if we can understand that example, that I don't have to have any authority, or I don't have to have any um, position to, to to lead someone. That should change our attitude about who we have the opportunity to lead. Because the answer is anyone. Because anyone can see our example. Anybody can see our service. Anyone can see that relentless day after day, time after time, that I'm going to serve you regardless of the consequences. Regardless of how you treat me, that I'm going to serve you the way that Jesus wants me to serve you day after day. And that pounding on a heart, that relentless chipping away has results. It just does. And the Bible tells us that. Where'd the flicker go? The results of this kind of leadership are, are slow and sometimes silent. We don't like that. We want poignant moments. We want specific instances we can point to. We want a turning point. We want a dramatic uh, 180 turn. We want an epiphany, right? We want somebody to say, yes, that's it. Now I'm changing my life. And yet Jesus compared his kingdom in Matthew 13 and verse 33 to yeast in dough. That it infiltrates souls. That it, that it gets into hearts. That, that the changes that are made are incremental. That they're sometimes slow and over a period of time. And that if, if you're around that person every day, you might not notice it. But after a week, after a month, after a year, their lives are changing. Now, ultimately, we, we, we all understand that that life has to submit itself to Jesus and has to follow the terms of pardon and all those kind of things. Uh, uh, granted, get it. But how does Jesus get into that heart? So often it's slowly. It's incremental. It's not, it's not visible to our eyes. Sometimes serving like this, sometimes uh, leadership through service, being a servant leader, looks like weakness. And people that don't understand will say, well, you're don't understand this type of leadership will say you're letting yourself get walked all over here aren't you gonna they just made fun of you aren't you gonna come back with something witty aren't you gonna aren't you gonna fight fire with fire aren't you gonna try to to answer that with something yourself second timothy the the second chapter verse 24 and 25 somebody have that for me
I mean, if if you're going to pick some stuff to put on your tombstone, there's worse there's worse stuff than this passage right here. The Lord's servant must he was not quarrelsome. He was kind to everyone. He was apt to teach. He patiently endured evil and he corrected his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance reading to the knowledge of the truth. That's fantastic stuff. That if that is how we combat, if that is how we treat people in our lives, if that's how we serve people consistently, then we can have an impact. It's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. Paul, what are you going to try to, what's your goal here? My goal is to win souls. How are you going to do it? Are you, are you taking public speaking classes? Are you taking how to make friends and influence people? How are you doing it, Paul? What's, what's the method? 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I have made myself a servant to all. Would that all of our lives that we would comprehend that we can be a servant to all. If we put ourselves on the bottom of the hierarchy and say, how can I be of service to everyone that I meet? Where can I be of most service? Obviously, we got family responsibilities, and our service and our family is paramount. And if we're not leading our families to Jesus, then 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 I, I fear that we're missing the whole the whole point of the thing. And that's where we can do our primary work. And yet, everyone I meet, how can I serve? Because Paul says, "I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them." I don't think any of us have the problem that are that um, we got too many people coming to our assemblies. Are we having that problem? Listen, we wish we could just cut back on the riffraff and just trim it down to the people that are really interested. Is anybody having that issue? No. And how many lives are we running into out in the world that are uh, attacked, beaten, and robbed? And how many of those are we meeting as the Good Samaritan met that man that was attacked, beaten, and robbed? I think our influence can be far greater than we assume that it can be. I just don't meet anybody that's really interested in the gospel. That's a cop-out. I think we're better than that. Christianity's not part-time. This is becoming one of my favorite verses. Um, and, I, and I hope that it has some meaning to you as well. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and verse 20. Whoever finds it can read it. We are ambassadors for Christ. If we had an ambassador from the Philippines in this room today, is there any point during the day that you would say, well, right now he's not an ambassador. Right now he's just Joe. We wouldn't say that, right? Everything that he did, because he is an ambassador, would be a reflection on the Philippines. That's kind of the way ambassadors are. There's not off days. You don't clock out, go take a smoke break, act like an idiot. Because that's going to end up on YouTube somewhere, and that's the ambassador to the Philippines. And that's a reflection on where you're an ambassador from. We are ambassadors for Christ. We don't have the luxury of off days. We don't have the luxury of clocking out. And thank goodness that we don't. 
because there is such joy in being able to do this that everybody we meet, that every interaction we have, that whether we're at, at work or at school, whether we're in the building or out of the building, whether we're out to eat, that we are an ambassador for Christ. We all sing the song, Christ has no hands but our hands, right? We understand that. If someone's only uh, conception of Jesus is what they saw in me, what would, that, what would that perception be? If all somebody knew about Christianity is what they saw in me, if all somebody knew about Jesus is what they saw in me, what would they think about Jesus? Because we are to be reflections of his life and we are ambassadors for Christ. There is so much opportunity out there that we let slip by. I'm not going to back up the tape. There is so much opportunity back there that I let slip by. You're going to have to judge for yourself. I'll just talk to me. There's so much opportunity out there that I let slip by. We can do so much better. If we can change the way that we instinctively think about the people that we meet. That they're souls, that they're hurting, and that we have the capacity to lead them through service. Uh, If there's other comments or, or questions or thoughts, I'd be happy to take them, but I'm out of gas. Thanks, everybody, for your attention.